For more media content from Grace Community Church in San Antonio, Texas, go to gccsatx.com. Chapter 12. So if you would like to open your Bibles there with me, Romans chapter 12. I was telling David earlier that I I noticed, I I haven't hardly touched any of this, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, his volume on Romans 12, I think like a quarter to a... a third of the entire, I think it's more like a third of the entire book, that volume that he did on Romans 12, deals with just these first two verses. And uh, like I say, I've, maybe at some point I will ponder the depths of all that he has to say on that, but I, I haven't actually yet. But I say that because I myself may, may I feel no hurry to get off these two verses. They are, they are rich. They are deep. I think they're helpful to us. Um, and what I have for you this morning is simply part two of what I started two weeks ago. The, the message that I brought then was a living sacrifice. That was part one. Today, it's part two. And so I just would like to open up this morning with uh, the reading of these first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren. I don't know why the ESV puts brothers. And they know, they footnote it, and they say that that term means men and women. They needed a generic term. This is not being addressed just to the brothers here. This is addressed to our sisters as well. The ESV does slight you sisters somewhat. I mean, have you noticed that? I don't like that. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, you know, we read over that. You read those words, living sacrifice. Well, yes, of course, we see those, we move on. You know, if you're you're just reading through the book of Romans and it's just your private devotional time, you're, you're past those words, nothing, you know, they basically just, they can go right over your head. My main purpose today is I want you guys to feel the term sacrifice. I want you to have a weightiness. I don't want you to think about that word again in your life and have it just be able to fly over your head or through your ears without some sort of weightiness to it. That's my only agenda today. Because really, this is where Paul goes after 11 chapters of some of the most amazing doctrines the most amazing teaching, just just astounding truths. And he comes to this point to say, therefore, based on all that, the conclusion of the matter is that something needs to happen with your life. 
And he's not talking small scale here. But so often I don't think we, we tend to really feel this. The chapter of, uh, the chapter, 12th chapter of Romans, it starts off with this ringing note of sacrifice. You can see that there. I appeal to you, brethren. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And I've been thinking about sacrifices this week, not just because I was going to preach here from this, but also because for the last several weeks, one part of my devotional reading has been in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a book spilling over with sacrifice. I just did a quick search in my Bible program. I, I typed in sacrifice, sacrificial, sacrifices, offerings. That's, that's really it. Just the different forms of sacrifice, the different forms of offering. And I just searched the book of Leviticus. Guess how many times it came up? Just guess. What was that? A thousand. Well, that, that's... Uh, Just both. Both those terms. I, I searched on both of them. 668 times. So a thousand, that was not a bad guess. That's just... that that. But you went over. So you have to be closest without going over. Isn't that how it always is? <laughs> but anyways, you know what really struck me? As I, as I poured through Leviticus, it's not just how many times sacrifices are mentioned. It's, it's how, you know, what, what I, it, it, it occurred to me as I was going through chapters 22, 23, I came to that part in Leviticus where it talks about the three main festival times when every male has to appear before God in Jerusalem. Of course, before they got to Jerusalem, it was, it was there at the tabernacle. But it, it just, I, I saw there, and it was just as I was looking at one of the feast times, I saw that seven lambs were required. And, I, and, I, and it got me thinking, well, that certainly could not have been from every family. I mean, that just, that Israel had to do that, right? And you know what? It's not really clear. But it's, it's, I, I suspect maybe it's what Israel had to do. If every male had to bring seven lambs, just, just the time frame of what that, but look, whichever way that went, as I was shocked by what that would have cost a man, that's, that's really what began to hit me. That sacrificial system, what it must have cost a man. I mean, do you realize in the Old Testament, a man's wealth was based on the size of his herds and his flocks. When the Lord wants us to know how rich Job was, you know, he doesn't say, well, he had these mutual funds, these retirement funds, this kind of fund in his bank account. That's not where God goes. You know what he says? Job possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. I mean, that's, that's how God tells us about the riches of a man in the Old Covenant system. Now, Job may have lived before the actual Mosaic law was handed down, but 
Nevertheless, in the Old Testament, basically, a man's wealth was measured that way. And most men, in fact, probably all men, had less than Job, because Job was, at least the time he was alive, he was the greatest. And a lot of that has to do with his riches. He was the richest man. Most men's flocks did not come close to that. And I got thinking about the sacrificial system, and I'm thinking, you know what, this is where they get their clothing, this is where they get their food. Animals were valuable to them. And here God is saying to them, now you go take what is most valuable to you, and you sacrifice it. And I got thinking, well, okay, how often did they have to do that? I mean, what did this look like as far as the cost? You know, think about it. Think about a bull. Sometimes they had to offer bulls. You, you offer a bull from your herd. Pretty, pretty major. And, and, and the thing about it was, that the, you, know, you know how it is when you have, you have your stuff. You know, you, you have your clothes. Well, you know, there, there are those... Clothes maybe in the drawer, well, they're marginal. You don't hardly wear them. I mean, if you had to grab something real quick to use it for a rag, you know, you know the one in there that you'd probably use. It's kind of like that with the animals, you know. You, you survey the thing, well, you know, if the wolves are going to get in and eat one, I hope it's that one over there. And what God was saying to him is, that one over there that you want the wolves to eat, or the one you least care about, or that old has-been bull out in the back pasture there that's basically good for nothing, God was on top of them and He said, that is not what I want. When you go to your flock, when you go to your herd to get one to offer to Me, I want the best you have. I want the one that is perfect. I want the one that has no blemish in it. What God wanted is when you surveyed those, those flocks and those herds and you looked out and there was one especially healthy. I mean, this one stood out. He was vibrant. He was just... he was. He was just the picture of strength and health. God says, that's the one I want right there. Well, I mean, how often did this kind of thing happen? Listen, you know what? You just start thinking about this whole thing. And you, you begin to realize, sacrifice means just that. It means sacrifice. It means you're giving something up that costs you something. And you see what I mean? It's not, it's not the old shirt in the drawer. It's not the old has-been ram out back there you know, kind of has the limp and it's renouncing, it's surrendering, yielding up that which is valuable to us. Something is a sacrifice when it has lots of value to us and we take that valuable thing and we surrender it up. But here's the thing that really struck me. I mean, Leviticus. Every time an Israelite wanted to offer thanks. And I think about that in my own life. How often do I offer God thanks? Well, you know what? Under the old covenant system, God expected that His people would offer thanks. And when you did it in an official and formal manner, guess what? It was going to cost you. It was going to cost you a bull or a cow from the herd without blemish, male or female, as a peace offering. Or it might be a lamb or a goat, male or female, without blemish. Now, okay, every time you give thanks, every time you want to formally give thanks, that's, that's what's going to be required. You go beyond that. Passover. You guys know what happened at Passover, right? There was a lamb offered up. So that's going to cost you another one. 
well, okay, so far you say, eh, okay, if I don't give thanks that much, and other than that, you know, Passover, we got to offer one, but we get to eat that one anyway, so it's, it's not that big yet. Okay, let's, let's move on a little bit. Each of the th- three feast times when every male Israelite had to come to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord, that was the time he would also offer his free will offerings which had to be a male from the herd or the flock. Now, free will means that you freely gave it. Okay, you say, well, if I wasn't wanting to be real thankful and I didn't want to give a whole lot of free will offerings, I could probably get by pretty well so far. Okay, let's go, let's go further. Every time your wife gave birth to a child, bang! You had to sacrifice another lamb a year old as a burnt offering. You had to give a pigeon turtle dove for a sin offering. Now, you might say, well, okay, we're just not going to have a whole lot of kids. But wait, we're not done yet. This thing gets, uh, gets heavier. There's more. Every time, I get this one. You really need to listen to this one. Every time an Israelite sinned unintentionally, just one of the common people, if they sinned in any of the Lord's commandments and realized His guilt, He needed to bring a female goat or a female lamb without blemish and sacrifice it. Freddie, some of us would have had really small flocks. Seriously, this is what the Lord required. I thought about a man. Think about this. I thought about if you were a man under the old covenant who had a tender conscience, you'd be marching out there. I mean, <laughs> the flock would be dwindling. The folks would be looking. There you go, old brother Freddie again. <laughs> Got another. <laughs> Every time. You realized you had sinned in any of the Lord's... You say, wait, where is that? Okay, it's in Leviticus 4.27. Listen to it. You don't have to turn there. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, without blemish, for his sin, which he has committed. And down in verse 32, it shows that that could be a lamb as well. Folks, I start this morning by emphasizing this. Because I want you to get the feeling that the very concept of sacrifice, it's a costly business. It's not a small word. This is... I mean, it was a costly business if you were determined to give God what He desired of you. Yeah, there were those who held back. There were those who were not willing to lay it all on the line. In the book of Malachi, the Lord rebukes Israel for offering their blind, their lame, their sick animals. I mean, He tells them, hey, look what you're bringing to me. You take those to your governor. See if he'll accept those. God wanted the best. God wanted what cost you a lot. I'd say this, do you think the word sacrifice when you come over into the New Testament? And remember, the book of Romans is inspired. God breathed it. He's the same one that breathed Leviticus. Same one that breathed Malachi. When he uses the term 
through the Apostle Paul under inspiration to tell his people, I want you to be a living sacrifice. He's not talking small terms here. He's talking that which is costly, that which is heavy duty, that which really is, is going to be expensive. Sacrifice always, always, always comes at a price. This is what God's calling us to when He calls us to a living sacrifice. Look, this is not a picture of middle class Americans minimally throwing their tithe in an offering plate once in a while thinking they've done this great thing for God. The living God is calling us to put it all on the altar. He's telling you, take what is most valuable to you. Take what you cherish most of all and put it on that altar. Empty yourself. Die to self. Brethren, I'm afraid that in our day and age, we don't really have a sense of this. We don't feel what sacrifice is. Sacrifice by its very nature by its very nature, means that there is some type of intrusion into my life. It means disruption. Isaiah 58.10. Listen to this. It says that we should pour ourselves out for the hungry. Literally, give your soul for the hungry. God's serious about this thing. He doesn't say, it's you know, go out there to the folks that are in need, give them a can of Campbell's soup. That's not it. When God says to give, He says, pour your soul out. Give it. That's literally what that means. To pour ourselves out for the hungry. The literal meaning of that word. Give your soul out. Does this sound like cheap talk? Living sacrifice. Beloved, I want you to feel the significance. Maybe there's another way. Consider this. 1 Corinthians 5.7 Now listen very carefully. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. I fear even hearing this, you're dull to it. You know why we're dull to it? Since we've been little kids, Growing up in America, we have heard, somewhere we've heard, we have this notion that Christ died for sinners. We're a very, very man-centered society. We live for our riches. We live for... That's why the prosperity gospel is so big today. You see, with all the prosperity teachings, <clears throat> I mean, you guys ever watch Benny Hinn for a few minutes? God's just bound to make you rich. Healthy, wealthy. You have it coming. You, you get bombarded by this, by a society that just thrives on self-indulgence. And you hear, Jesus Christ has been sacrificed. Well, of course He has. Of course! I mean, I'm, I'm pretty important. I would expect God would do that for me. That's how man thinks. And so when we hear sacrifice, <laughs> what's 
upset. I mean, on top of that, not only do we think what Christ did was a pretty minimal thing, we think our sin is pretty minimal. Because we think we're pretty great. And so, compared to the sins we commit, well, we don't see our... We don't, we don't see this as such a bad thing. Of course, He sacrificed Himself for us. And, and, and you know what? Even, even on top of that, we're just, we're just not that... We're not that bad. Listen to this. Psalm 22.14 This is David speaking and prophesying what would happen to Christ. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Isaiah 53.5 He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Now, it's still, I, I'm certain to most of us, it still seems like a small thing. Well, crushing, I mean, what, what's that? You see, because if we come closer to understanding a word like crushed, we come closer to understand a word like sacrifice. And we come closer to understanding what it is that God calls us to when He calls us to be a living sacrifice. God put His Son to grief. Christ was clothed with superhuman terror. With agony, He's melted under the very fierce burnings of God's wrath. Stricken, smitten, afflicted. Until virtually He's liquefied. Poured out like water. Under the overwhelming weight of fury. But maybe what I can help you feel this with is simply a contrast. A stark contrast contrast. Let me tell you about a man. I've just recently been reading about the Scotch Covenanters. A book called Fair Sunshine. Let me tell you, I, I mentioned this man in our Bible study on Tuesday night several weeks back. John Nisbet. Listen to this. Picture this in your minds. Let your minds wander back to the year 1685 to the land of Scotland. Scottish Covenanter, John Nisbet. He lived in the days of King Charles II. Now let me tell you what happened in those days. Charles basically said this. He exalted himself and said, I am head of the church. And in those days, if you said, no, you are not head of the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church. You basically signed your death warrant. That's what was happening. <coughs> Excuse me. So it was for John Nisbet. One day he was in prayer with three others. And he was discovered. He was attacked. By a party of soldiers. 
These soldiers were actually led by his cousin. You see, his cousin knew, being a family member, that John had a price on his head. They captured these four men. They put bullets immediately in three of the men's heads. But they took Nisbet because there was a price on his head and his cousin wanted to make some money off the deal. But I'll tell you what, in taking him, Nisbet suffered seven major wounds. I mean, wounds that likely would have killed him um, had he been allowed to live much longer after this. He was actually executed. But he was taken to Edinburgh. He was tried. He was sentenced to death. In prison, he was cruelly treated. Now, you've got to understand, this guy was wounded severely. And what they did was they threw him basically in a dungeon and they weighted him down with chains. About a hundred pounds of chains. He, he basically was barely able to move. All the time he was... This is the thing you need to get. This comes from quotes that have been recorded by him. That time he was in that prison, he says himself that he was filled with inexpressible joy and continually witnessed the strong inward assurance and assistance from the Holy Spirit. He said, it's pleased God to give me such real impressions of unspeakable glory as without constant and immediate support from the giver, I would have certainly been overwhelmed. This frail tabernacle is not able to hold up under what I now feel. A few days before he was hanged, he was so transported into glory that he could only the only thing he could say is, Oh, for Friday! Oh, for Friday! Which, of course, was his day of execution. He could hardly contain himself. He cried, Lord, give me patience to wait thy appointed time. Give strength to bear up under thy sweet, sweet presence. If thou, O glorious, thou the chief of ten thousands, the eternal wonder and admiration of the angels and redeemed saints, put not to me more strength. This weak clay vessel will rend in pieces under the unspeakably glorious manifestations of thy rich grace and matchless, matchless presence. Under this heart, listen, you guys have to grasp this. In prison, you've been injured terribly. There's no doctor, there's no painkillers. You're just thrown on a damp, dreary dungeon floor covered with chains, a hundred pounds in weight. The wounds you have, you'd be miserable if you were in a bed. He's on a dungeon floor. Under that harsh treatment, he rejoiced, claiming he'd had a vision of God so intense it would have killed him if God hadn't given him the strength to bear it. He pleaded to God not to help him endure the prison or his wounds. He needed help to endure the overwhelming manifestation of God. Another picture in your head. See this man. He's walking a lonely road. Had a crown of thorns crushed upon his brow. If you've heard anything about scourging, you know that those Roman soldiers did it with mastery, with art. They knew how to rip 
a man's flesh off his body with that scourge. Imagine this man. He's going to Golgotha. The place of the skull. He's condemned to die. Look at him. His soul is sick. There's a sadness that's pressed upon him. Howdy, folks. Do you see this in your minds? You look at him. You compare the face to Nisba. Joy unspeakable and full of glory in the one who can't hardly contain himself. Look upon the face of the other. There's a that hollowed look of dread and doom and sadness. This man was recently on his face in a garden pleading. Pleading, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Folks, there's no song of praise on his lips. Here, let your ear open up to the sounds there. There's agony. He's mercilessly staked to a cross. You hear no shout of exultation. There's nothing on his face. A look of stern somberness. What is this? I mean, Christ sings sweeter songs than John Nisbet? Is that not possible? Can't he speak of unspeakable glory and inward assistance? But that isn't the case at all. What's surging out of the soul of Christ is an awful wail of woe. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John Nisbet never said that. He never said that. God was with him. How many of those martyrs of old, I remember vividly the one, I believe Spurgeon relayed this. I read about it at one time somewhere. But that saint who in the fires of his own death was so full of joy, he was clapping his hands until literally the fire burnt them off and they fell off in one of the claps. But where is that? Paul and Silas can be thrown in a dungeon and there they sing with songs of Zion, full of song, full of joy. But my brethren, it's not so with the Savior. Why? Why is it like this? Where is the song? Why the silence? And when He does speak, it's in tones of doom. It's because the Father bruised Him. That help, that sustaining. Listen, brethren. Listen to me. God's Word to us is this. It comes out of Hebrews 13.5. God says He'll never leave us or forsake us. We find that the church, we find that the martyrs constantly had the everlasting arms underneath us. But behold, the Son of God, there's no arms underneath. 
God is not holding them up. When God puts His hand to Christ, it is not to hold Him up. It is to smite Him, strike Him, smile of God was withdrawn. He was forsaken. He was rejected. And he says through David that his soul literally melted. Poured out like waters. Begin to look at that term sacrifice. God did not spare His own Son but He gave Him up for us all. Does that give you the idea that sacrifice is a word that doesn't just easily slide off the tongue of God as though it's some cheap, easy, defective, cut-rate deal? You guys, you think when God talks about sacrifice, it's cheap talk? Does the word sacrifice conjure up images of ease in your mind? That's not what the Lord wants us to get. That's not what He wants us to think. It's not a word that gives us images of holding something back. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Man, what is this? Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself. What's that mean? Is it some pathetic over-dramatization? Of the term sacrifice? Folks, we can tend to think we've sacrificed if we help move a few tables after a service or put a little money in the box back there. But the term sacrifice is costly. It's deep. It conjures up images of tremendous cost. To the Old Testament saint, it was costly. Sacrifice, sacrifice. Whenever I sin unintentionally and it's found out, whenever my wife gives birth, whenever I want to give a free will offering, whenever I want to give thanks to the Lord and do it in that way, whenever there is Passover, I constantly sacrifice, was, was constantly pointing to his flocks and his herds, the very point of his wealth. Take your best, take your best, give, 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 offer it up, resign it. And to God the Father, to God the Son, to them, sacrifice means that one of them spills the soul of the other. Brethren, the Lord God wants us to feel this. To feel it. You are to be a living sacrifice. The idea is give, 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 give. Give it all. Give it now. Give it tomorrow. Keep giving. Brethren, God calls you to be a living sacrifice. Not a living amusement seeker. Not a living comfort finder. Not a living softling who's just constantly milling about life looking for its easiest paths. Living sacrifice, brethren. That's what we're being called to. All of it on the altar. Nothing held back. 
And we don't do this because we're paying for our sin. Jesus Christ laid down His life once and for all to pay for our sin. That's not the reason. Brethren, we're going to look much more at that, Lord willing, next week. But what I want you guys to see is the weightiness of this term. Give and give and give and give. It's a massive word of giving. Sacrifice. Not a word used lightly in God's Word. I know men use it lightly. But God does not. Give. Give. And I know today Brethren, those Macedonians of old, think about those folks. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says this about them. We want you to know, brothers, or brethren, again, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Grace had been given to them. In the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And look at this, verse 5. This not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You want to know what sacrifice is? It's giving yourself to God. And you do that, the result of that will be to give yourself to men. You see what Paul's preparing us for? He's preparing us for a radical life. The life of Romans 12. He tells us in these verses of, of Romans 12. If you're not there, turn back there. Romans 12. Everything about this chapter just screams, give, does it not? I mean, Paul's setting this up with terminology about being a living sacrifice because everything here, the love required in verses 9 and 10 requires that we give ourselves. God so loved that He did what? He gave. If you're going to love, you cannot begin to define love if it doesn't include giving. You need to be living, loving sacrifices. That's the idea. Giving. 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 Giving what is most precious. Giving what is most cherished. Giving of your best. Giving. 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 I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna take the lowly, you see that down in Romans 12. You see that we are definitely to contribute to the needs of the saints. Verse 13, if you're going to contribute to the needs of the saints, you've got to give. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I mean, what does that take? Giving my affections, giving my emotions. Those are pretty valuable to us. But giving them for the cause of others. If you're not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, that requires you to give away high views of yourself. Give away the attention to yourself. Give away your high exalted views. 
to use all the spiritual gifts correctly that are spoken about in 6 through 8. I mean, you guys know the general teaching of this in Scripture. Your spiritual gifts aren't supposed to be used for yourself. They're supposed to be used for others. It's a pouring out. It's a giving, a giving, a giving. God did not give you your spiritual gifts so that you could clam up, go hide in a corner. It's to give. How can you be constant in prayer? Verse 12, unless you give yourself to that. I just spoke speaking about associating with the lowly. You find that in verse 16. You can't associate with the lowly unless you give yourself to associating with the lowly. Brethren, we can't begin to talk about the radical lifestyle of Romans 12 unless we start seeing what a big word sacrifice is. And I'm emphasizing, you know what? There are people that come into the church that are takers. They take, 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 take. This, this rings in my ears, and I've never forgotten it in my 19 years as a Christian. But I can remember as a young Christian hearing a guy after a certain church service, he said to me, I didn't get anything out of that. And you know what? As I look, and what... I don't, I don't exactly know where that guy is now, but I can tell you this, what I've seen is he's never been able to get to a place where he can just settle down, commit to a church and give. And give. And give. You know the kind of people that say I didn't get anything out of that? They're the people that certainly are not attempting to put anything into that. And I'm afraid that some of you, what I want to do is I want to encourage you not to be that. Don't be the kind that will come in here and sit in a chair that somebody else set up for you, but God forbid you'll never set one up for somebody else. Oh, you'll be happy to have somebody else take care of the thermostat and, and set up the piano and everything, and you love to come in and have the temperature just right, and you love to hear the piano play. But far be it that you would ever give yourself. You see, the lifestyle of Romans 12, it's a picture of a church where all the different members are just giving. And that's not to say that everybody has the same gifts. We realize there's differences of gifts. And somebody may be... Look, and, and don't ever get offended at this if you're setting up the chairs and you see somebody else over in the corner not setting up chairs, but they're encouraging their brother. Because that may be their gift. They're pouring themselves out in the way God has gifted them. That doesn't mean that everybody does the same thing. What I'm really coming down on is those of you that just take. You take the food that's served. You take the worship services. You take, you take, you take, you take. But you don't give. And I'm not talking about what you put in the box. That's part of the equation, obviously, if you're going to contribute to the needs of the saints. If you're going to contribute to the needs of the spread of the gospel. If you're going to contribute to the needs of the widow and the orphan. If you're going to contribute to the needs of those who are ministering to you out of this word. That's true. It involves that. But being a living sacrifice goes way beyond the wallet, folks. It's the whole life. It's what's most for you. You know what? None of you should be to the place, even if for some reason you get to the place where something about this church isn't what you want and you determine God would rather have you somewhere else. So be it. But you should not be in a place where you walk out of a church and all you can say is, I got nothing out of that. You know what happened when Jesus Christ ministered to people? He felt 
virtue go out of himself. He expended himself. He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave. Now look, when you come to Christ, there's no question about it. It is to get. But this is the basis of the appeal. All those mercies of the first 11 chapters, which is where we're going next week. But it's in light of all that you've received. You, as Craig talked about, we are to be simply these conduits. God, look, it's not as though you offer yourself up a living sacrifice and you're giving to God something that He needs from you. When you offer yourself a living sacrifice, you're tied in to the very Christ Himself. It's from Him that you draw all the resources. All you are is a conduit. What He's saying when He talks about you presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, He's saying, open up to be a conduit. That God just keeps pouring into you, pouring into you, and it all just floods out. You give it, give it, give it, give it. That's what He's talking about. Not that you hoard and you keep it back. Don't be takers. Listen to me. There's a parable that the Lord told. It's, in fact, probably the most important parable because Jesus Christ told His disciples, if you don't understand this one, how in the world are you ever going to understand any of the others? And you probably know the one I mean. It's the parable of the soils. Well, in that parable, Jesus said this, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came, devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. The whole idea isn't that there were some rocks scattered around in it. Likely what it is is the soil was shallow and underneath it was much like my front yard. It's just a layer of stone under there that the roots just can't get through. And so the roots go down, they hit the stone. They don't have any place to go. There's no depth. They can't get down into the deep moistures. And what happens is the plant throws a lot of its energy into sprouting upward. Looks green, looks glorious, looks great. This is a picture he tells us. As he goes on, but the problem with this thing is, sun comes up and the thing withers away. Well, his disciples wanted some explanation of this, and he tells them, "Here's what it is. When anybody hears the word of kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what was sown in the heart. That's the first thing. That's the seed on the stone on the, on this this trodden down path. But he gives some explanation to the second soil." As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while when tribulation or persecution arises. On account of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, the problem with the second one is there's a defect. The defect is below the surface. It's where people can't see it. But something comes along and happens that exposes the defect. What is it? Well, the sun comes out. What's the sun? Son's persecution, it's tribulation. But listen to me. You know another way that we might term persecution? You know another way that we might actually look at tribulation? We might rather say that tribulation and persecution are a sacrifice of comfort. A sacrifice of ease. You see, the real problem with these people is they're not willing to make any sacrifice. And it's really the same kind of person. And I'll tell you, some of you, I don't doubt, will drift away eventually because you're not willing to give. And when it comes to the point where something is required of you, 
you're not willing to make the sacrifice and it may be the end of you. May God give us what we heard about in the Sunday school, a fruitful church, sacrifice in the mind and the heart of God as He expresses it to His children is a radical term. It is an all-consuming term. Jesus Christ came along and in John 13, He washed the feet of His disciples. And He said to His disciples, look, I've given you an example. I expect you to do the same. Give of yourselves. Give and give and give and give. Don't be one of those people who walks out and says, I didn't get anything out of that. That is not the language of a living sacrifice. The living sacrifice leaves goes through His week. It's not just Sundays. It's every day. But it's a giving. A giving to the folks that belong to God first. And then to all men after that. Yes, folks. Sacrifice is costly. It's intrusive into your life. But it's exactly if you're a child of God, it's exactly what God calls you to. May you never look at the term sacrifice lightly again. You're dismissed.